Chapter 24 of The House of the Wolfings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The House of the Wolfings by William Morris. Chapter 24 The Goths are overthrown by the Romans. Now rose up a mighty shout when Theodulf came back to the Battle of the Kindreds, for many thought he had been slain. And they gathered around him, and cried out to him joyously out of their hearts of good fellowship. And the old man who had rebuked Theodulf, and who was Jorund of the Wolfings, came up to him, and reached out to him the hauberk, and he did it on scarce heeding, for all his heart and soul was turned toward the battle of the Romans, and what they were a-doing. And he saw that they were falling back in good order, as men outnumbered, but undismayed. So he gathered all his men together, and ordered them afresh, for they were somewhat disarrayed with the fray and the chase, and now he no longer ordered them in the wedge array, but in a line here three deep, here five deep or more, for the foes were hard at hand and outnumbered, and so far overcome, that he and all men deemed it a little matter to give these their last overthrow, and then onward to Wolfstead to storm on what was left there, and purge the house of the foemen. Howbeit Theodulf bethought him that succor might come to the Romans from their main battle, as they needed not many men there, since they were not to fear behind them. But the thought was dim within him, for once more, since he had gotten the hauberk on him, the earth was wavering and dreamlike. He looked about him, and nowise was he as in past days of battle, when he saw naught but the foe before him, and hoped for nothing save the victory. But now indeed the wood sun seemed to him to be beside him, and not against his will, as one besetting and hindering him, but as though his own longing had drawn her thither and would not let her depart. And whilst it seemed to him that her beauty was clearer to be seen than the bodies of the warriors around him. For the rest he seemed to be in a dream indeed, and, as men do in dreams, to be forever striving to be doing something of more moment than anything which he did but which he must ever leave undone. And as the dream gathered and thickened about him, the foe before him changed to his eyes, and seemed no longer the stern, brown-skinned, smooth-faced men under their crested iron helmets with their iron-covered shields before them, but rather big-headed men, small of stature, long-bearded, swart, crooked of body, exceeding foul of aspect. And he looked on, and did nothing for a while, and his head whirled as though he had been grievously smitten. Thus tarried the kindreds a while, and they were bewildered, and their hearts fell because Theodulf did not fly on the foemen like a falcon on the quarry as his wont was. But as for the Romans, they had now stayed and were facing their foes again, and that on a vantage ground, since the field sloped up toward the wolfing dwelling, and they gathered heart when they saw that the Goths tarried and forbore them. But the sun was sinking, and the evening was hard at hand. So at last Theodulf led forward with throng-plough, held aloft in his right hand. But his left hand he held out by his side, as though he were leading someone along. And as he went he muttered, When will these accursed sons of the nether earth leave the way clear to us, that we may be alone, and take pleasure each in each amidst of the flowers and the sun? Now as the two hosts drew near to one another, again came the sound of trumpets afar off, and men knew that this would be succor coming to the Romans from their main battle, and the Romans thereon shouted for joy, 
and the host of the kindreds might no longer forbear, but rushed on fiercely against them. And for Theodulf it was now come to this, that so entangled was he in his dream, that he rather went with his men than lead them. Yet had he throng-plough on his right hand, and he muttered in his beard as he went, Smite before, smite behind, and smite on the right hand, but never on the left. Thus when they met, and as before, neither might the Goths sweep the Romans away, nor the Romans break the Goths into flight. Yet were many of the kindred anxious and troubled, since they knew what aid was coming to the Romans, and they heard the trumpets sounding nearer and more joyous, and at last, as the men of the kindreds were growing aweary with fighting, they heard those horns as it were in their very ears, and the thunder of the tramp of footmen, and they knew what a fresh host of men was upon them. Then those they had been fighting with opened before them, falling aside to the right and the left, and the fresh men passing between them fell on the Goths like the waters of a river when a sluice-gate is opened. They came on in very good order, never breaking their ranks, but swift withal, smiting and pushing before them, and so break through the array of the Goth folk, and drave them this way and that way down the slopes. Yet still fought the warriors of the kindred most valiantly, making stand and facing the foe again and again in knots of a score or two score or maybe ten score. And though many a man was slain, yet scarce any one before he had slain or hurt a Roman. And some there were, and they the oldest, who fought as if they and the few about them were all the host that was left to the folk, and heeded not that others were driven back, or that the Romans gathered about them, cutting them off from all succor and aid, but went on smiting till they were felled with many strokes. Howbeit the array of the Goths was broken, and many were slain, and perforce that they must give back, and it seemed as if they would be driven into the river, and all would be lost. But for Theodulf this befell him, that at first, when those fresh men fell on, he seemed, as it were, to waken to himself again, and he cried aloud the cry of the wolf, and thrust into the thickest of the fray, and slew many, and was hurt of none, and for a moment of time there was an empty space round about him, such fear he cast even into the valiant hearts of the foemen. But those who had time to see him as they stood by him noted that he was as pale as a dead man, and his eyes set and staring, and so of a sudden, while he stood thus threatening the ring of doubtful foemen, the weakness took him again, Throngplow tumbled from his hand, and he fell to earth as one dead. Then of those who saw him some deemed that he had been striving against some secret hurt till he could do no more, and some that there was a curse abroad that had fallen upon him, and upon all the kindreds of the mark. Some thought him dead and some swooning, but, dead or alive, the warriors would not leave their war-duke among the foemen. So they lifted him, and gathered about him a goodly band that held its own against all comers, and fought through the turmoil stoutly and steadily, and others gathered to them, till they begun to be something like a host again. And the Romans might not break them into knots of desperate men any more. Thus they fought their way, Aaron Bjorn of the Bearings leading them now, with a mind to make a stand for life or death on some vantage ground, and so, often turning upon the Romans, they came in array ever growing more solid, to the rising ground looking one way over the ford, and the other to the slopes where the battle had just been. There they faced the foe as men who may be slain, but will be driven no further, and what bowmen they had got spread out from their flanks, and shot on the Romans, who had with them no light-armed, or slingers, or bowmen, for they had left them at Wolfstead. 
So the Romans stood a while and gave breathing space to the markmen, which indeed was the saving of them, for if they had fallen on hotly and held to it steadily, it is like that they would have passed over all the bodies of the markmen. For these had lost their leader, either slain, as some thought, or, as others thought, banned from leadership by the gods, and their host was heavy-hearted, and though it is like that they would have stood there till each had fallen over other, yet was their hope grown dim, and the whole folk brought to a perilous and fearful pass. For if these were slain or scattered, there were no more but they, and not between fire and the sword and the people of the mark. But once again the faint-heart folly of the Roman captain saved his foes, for as he once thought that the whole power of the markman lay in otter and his company, and deemed them too little to meddle with, so now he ran his head into the other hedge, and deemed that Theodolf's company was but a part of the succor that was at hand for the Goths, and that they were over big for him to meddle with. True it is also that now dark night was coming on, and the land was unknown to the Romans, who moreover trusted not wholly to the dastards of the Goths who were their guides and scouts. Furthermore, the wood was at hand, and they knew not what it held, and with all this and above it all it is to be said that over them also had fallen a dread of some doom anear, for those habitations amidst of the wild woods were terrible to them as they were dear to the Goths, and the gods of their foemen seemed to be lying in wait to fall upon them, even if they should slay every man of the kindreds. So now, having driven back the Goths to that height over the ford, which indeed was no stronghold, no mountain, scarce a hill even, not but a gentle swelling of the earth, they forbore them, and raising up the whoop of victory, drew slowly aback, picking up their own dead and wounded, and slaying the wounded markmen. They had with them also some few captives, but not many, for the fighting had been to the death between man and man on the wolfing meadow. End of chapter 24